I can't believe that as a human being I did that. Okay. You know, the way that they look at it is, you know, European non-Jewish heritage. So I never had an issue when I was involved. But certainly, you know, once I was able to step away from that world and look back at what I had done, you know, I looked at the oppression that I had given to immigrants and to people of color, almost the same as if I would have done it to my own parents at the time. And that that I I couldn't reconcile. The Straight A's Podcast is a production of In-Depth Media. If you're a fan of the Straight A's Podcast, you know we tackle difficult topics independent schools are facing. Today's episode is no exception. My name is Amani Reed, and I have the pleasure of introducing this episode. At this time in our nation's history, it's becoming increasingly important that we have conversations about race and identity in this country. Recently, the Straight A's had the opportunity to explore these topics along with activism, forgiveness, and accountability. We sat down with Christian Picciolini to discuss his message to the students at the Student Diversity Leadership Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. His story is complex and challenging. What makes this conversation unique? Well, Christian Picciolini is an award-winning television producer, public speaker, author, peace advocate, and former violent extremist. In 2016, he won an Emmy for directing and producing an anti-hate advertising campaign to help people disengage from violence-based extremist groups. Since leaving the white supremacist movement over two decades ago, Picciolini has dedicated his life to helping others overcome hate through such organizations as Life After Hate, Exit USA, and the Free Radicals Project. The National Association of Independent Schools People of Color Conference, or POCC, was founded to, and continues to, focus on people of color in independent schools, while the Student Diversity Leadership Conference, or SDLC, has a very different goal. 2018 marked the 25th anniversary of SDLC. as a multiracial, multicultural gathering of student leaders, grades 9 through 12, from across the U.S. and abroad. SDLC focuses on student leadership for equity and justice in our schools. Part of this experience includes hearing from and working with a wide range of educators and experts, including a dialogue with the educators from their own schools to share how we can be better supports for the students when we return to our school communities. As a student, the creation of SDLC was a critical part of my development. Working with students from other schools laid the foundation for my work in equity and justice as an educator. As teachers and administrators, each of the straight A's has served as a chaperone or helped our schools bring students, faculty, and staff to POCC and SDLC for many years. We have seen firsthand the impact these conferences have on our school communities. Today's guest was a speaker at SDLC in 2018. We share this episode with you to highlight the work of our students and one person's story of his search for identity, purpose, and community. So sit back and enjoy the straight A's with our special guest, Christian Picciolini. My name is Andre Withers. I'm the assistant head of school at the Madeira School in McLean, Virginia. To my left is Art Hall. Art Hall, say hello. Hello. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, Welcome to our podcast that features our uh, SDLC speaker this afternoon. Uh, Again, as Dre mentioned, my name is Art Hall. I'm the assistant head of school at Tower Hill School in Wilmington, Delaware. And we hope very much so to uh, explore the topic around race, individuality, and I dare say recovery 
uh, from the gentleman that is sitting immediately to my right, your left. Without further ado, I think we should probably introduce and get and get it going and get it started. That's right, Christian Picciolini. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andre. It's good to be here. So uh, we told the, we told everybody a little bit about us um, from where we hail, the schools that we represent. Tell us the Christian Picciolini story. Wow. Okay, so it's a long story, but uh, um, you know, essentially, it starts out on the south side of Chicago as the son of an, an immigrant family from Italy uh, who came over to the U.S. in the '60s. And, you know, growing up, I had a pretty normal childhood, relatively speaking, but I felt very abandoned by my parents because, you know, as immigrants, they had to work extra hard. They were gone running a small business seven days a week, 16 hours a day. So growing up, you know, not only living in a small Italian bubble on the south side of Chicago, not knowing exactly if I was Italian or American or Italian-American, I also uh, developed a, an anxiety over being detached from my parents, and I started to look for acceptance elsewhere. And at uh, 14 years old, in 1987, I was standing in an alley. I was smoking a joint, and uh, this guy came up to me, uh, who was twice my age. Right. He had a shaved head. Yep. He was wearing boots. Right. And uh, he walked up to me, grabbed that joint from my mouth, and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. Wow. And it was at that moment, well, I, first of all, didn't know what a communist or a Jew or even what the word docile meant at 14 right. years old. <laughs> right. uh, but right. that, was the, that was the first time in my life that I ever felt as though somebody was giving me a lifeline of sorts. And it was also the day that I was recruited into America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group uh, in 1987 at 14 years old. And I would spend the next eight years of my life in that movement. Wow. So 14? 14. Yeah. Wow. Barely 14. I think I was 13 and a half. Actually. Wow. So now at the age of 14, when you were being recruited and you had this event happen to you, did you see this as a life-changing moment? Like similar to if we pick on Christianity, like you had your soul had been saved when this gentleman approached you and talked to you about what you were doing to yourself? No, it had nothing to do with my soul at all. Right. <laughs> uh, it had to do with me uh, finding an identity, a community, and a purpose. Okay. And I think that that's, those three things are, are something that everybody looks for. Right. As we're growing, you know, especially for, for uh, young people, they want to know who they are, where they belong, and what they're supposed to do with their lives. And I had never been able to find that. And he, he basically gifted me those three things he right. said you're going from powerless to powerful okay you're going from you know essentially homeless to a family right and here's your purpose right. you're going to save your race and at 14 years old i thought okay i don't know what he's talking about but i'm going to give it a shot because i don't know what else i can do right uh, there was nothing else for me what was it what was it like sort of in the immediate days after that interaction what was like your later conversation with him or what was the conversation with the family yeah. or friends? Well, I can tell you, I mean, I felt very empowered. I yeah. felt very emboldened because I had gone from this, you know, bullied, you know, very alienated kid who didn't have any friends growing up to now somebody who, you know, was basically put on a pedestal by his yeah. peers. Right, uh, right. You know, I, w I wasn't that weak kid anymore. Right. And now when I shaved my head and, and wore the boots, the bullies would cross the street and they would avoid me. So immediately, I, I felt very empowered by it. You know, it did give me a sense of camaraderie, but I also struggled with 
the ideology because I wasn't raised that way. Yeah. You know, my parents were immigrants who were often the victims of prejudice. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it wasn't something that I learned at home. And in fact, what I've learned through my work now is that the vast majority of people who go into these types of hate movements don't actually learn it at home. They learn it outside of the home. Okay. Now there okay. may be, you know, right. reinforced bias and things like that, but, right. the, but the actual, you know, what we're talking about as far as white nationalism or the alt-right, that's not something they're learning at home. Yeah. Uh, so I did struggle with that. In fact, I struggled for eight years with that. Yeah. Uh, I always had questions about what I was doing, but I wasn't, I was, I felt like I was getting more from doing it than I would if I stopped. Yeah. And I was so afraid of going back to that place where I was, uh, you know, a nothing um, that I, you know, I, I continually made the wrong choices to stay in because right. it did fill me with this sense of, you know, this perception of power. But, you know, the meetings were what you would expect. Um, you know, they were hate-filled. Yeah. They were filled with, you know, violent rhetoric. Yep. They were like pep rallies for uh, haters, essentially. Right. It, was to, it was meant to inspire us, to fill us with, you know, this propaganda to and conspiracy theories that right. back then were not on the Internet. They were in, right. re, in right. real life. These, I had to learn like, them yeah. from were somebody. these like dozens, hundreds? Of people? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hundred, hundred. I mean, it would start out. Uh, when I got involved, I was in the first skinhead gang, you know, racist skinhead gang in America. Right. So there weren't a lot of us. Right. But over time, you know, it started it out with dozens and they were in cities, you know, across America. But then it turned into hundreds and then it turned into thousands. Right. And unfortunately, what we're seeing today, I think what I was a part of, you know, even though it was violence and there was a death toll, it, it pales in comparison, I think, to what we're seeing today. Wow. So we, I think, you know, when you talk about the definition of what an ism is, right? Sure. I think white folks think they know what it's like to be black. Maybe black folks think they know what it's like for someone to be Jewish or Asian. Sure. Talk specifically about what is the definition of white supremacy? Well, you know, I think that we can talk about white supremacy in two ways, right? Obviously, there is the systemic and institutionalized racism right. that, you know, people of color experience. And that's, you know, pretty under the table. It's not very right. overt. Right. And then what I deal with is more of, you know, the interpersonal overt racism, the violent extremist. But I would say in general, if we're talking about, you know, the world that, that I work in, as far as a white supremacist goes... It has many definitions. There are many right. splinters under that. We hear terms like the alt-right or white right. nationalists or right. skinheads or Klan or, uh, you know, you name, even neo-confederists and things like that. Right. I would say they all fall under the banner of the ideology of white supremacy, which to them is they feel they are genetically superior. They feel they are entitled to the spoils because... They are the ones in their eyes the ones that did the work. Who did the work? Right, right, right. Obviously, you know, ignoring the fact that that's not true. Right, right. That's what they believe. What it really is is there is fear and isolation in my eyes. I believe that hatred is born of ignorance. Fear is its father, and isolation is its mother. Yeah. They are afraid that demographics are changing, right, and that they've been fed with this idea that because it's changing, it is a plot to destroy their race. Right. This is paranoia. This right. is not there's, reality. There's, there's going to be loss associated with it. Right. Yeah. But but the Power. reality is, is over thousands and tens of thousands of years. That's not been the case. Things have always changed. Yeah. We've right. always, you know, the world is what it is. There is, you know, they believe there is a concerted plot right. to destroy them. And right. they, you know, to some degree believe that diversity 
is a plot to destroy the white race right. because it, it, you know, in their eyes, it, it waters it down. Uh, you know, but the, but their basis for this is conspiracy theory. It's it's junk science based on race and IQ right. that's been disputed and disproven for many many years. Uh, even long-standing conspiracy theories from the early 1900s that came out of czarist Russia, like books uh, called The Protocols of the Elders right. of Zion, yeah. which is a completely fraudulent account of uh, you know a supposed Jew, uh, uh, meeting of Jewish leaders conspiring to take over the world wow. through media and yeah. banking and all these things. It, you know, it's been disproven yep. for 100 years, yep. uh, and they still use it as the basis of their beliefs. So, you know, what we're seeing today with the spread of the internet and the spread of fake news, this is just an outgrowth. The internet provided a springboard and kind of was the gunpowder for this to now just boom and start to infect the average yeah. person because it really was on the fringes before as far as, you know, militant violent white yeah. supremacists go. There was always white supremacy right. permeating everywhere, but as far as, you know, the world that I live in now, that, you know, it's not a fringe anymore. It is part of the mainstream. So how do, I mean, you talk about white supremacy and, I, and, and studying history and the definition of race in America that started off as white is Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? Yeah, Italian and, was not always white. Italian was yeah. not always white. And in, and in any case, Italians were treated very poorly when they arrived in the country. So looking back on that history of you being involved in a white supremacist organization and then the history of your own heritage, did it ever come to you or has it dawned on you that man, I was, I was in something that was contrary <laughs> to the ancestry right, of, right. of what I'm bringing. Right. I, I think even more contrary to the Italian part is just human being. Right. Yeah. Like, I can't believe that as a human being I did that. Okay. You know, the way that they look at it is, you know, European non-Jewish heritage. So I never had an issue when I was involved. But certainly, you know, once I was able to step away from that world and look back at what I had done, yeah. you know, I looked at the oppression that I had given to immigrants and to people of color almost the same as if I would have done it to my own parents right, at right. the time. And that, right. that I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile. I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to forgive myself for that because I had been blinded by this, you know, kind of this drive to, to be instead of, uh, understanding that I felt marginalized and I felt alienated. So I joined a group that made me for, <laughs> made me feel even more marginalized That's and right. alienated. That's right. right. That's right. And, uh, you know, it was like a drug. I mean, I knew it was killing me, but I did it yeah. because it made me feel good for a time when I felt probably the lowest in my life. Mm -hmm. And that feeling of goodness wasn't really good. It was tricking me. Yeah. And, right. and then it was destroying me even right. further. Right. But I never could distance myself from the, the confusion of what I believed in because I, I did feel guilt. I did feel empathy for people, yeah. even as I hurt them. Yeah. Uh, but what I was getting from the movement at the time it was more powerful. Fooled me into into thinking that it was yeah. more powerful. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm curious about for for white supremacists, and this may seem like a odd question, but why is the violent a necessary ingredient? Is is that is that part of the suppression? Is that part of the because clearly they're operating from a place of fear. Are they using violence as another fear tactic? For that oppression and suppression? Yes. There are two things that white supremacists love, and yeah. that is silence and violence. Okay. Right? Yeah. If we are silent, they grow. Yeah. If we ignore them, you know, continue to, to pretend we're living in a post-racial society where I would guarantee if you asked anybody in this convention center we are not. if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> nobody so thought, to, nobody right. thought to ask the people, you know, right. who were being affected by right. that. 
so if we're silent, they grow. They can spread their narratives. They can use fear-mongering techniques. They can, you know, go kind of unchallenged. Yeah. And that's what's happened in yeah. the last 30 years. Yeah. Uh, and people were patting themselves on the back. You know, hate crimes were going down. Membership in white supremacist groups were going down. But right. what was really happening was is they were going underground. They were morphing yeah. into, yeah. you know, they were going from boots to suits is right. what they were right. doing. Right. So the violence was meant to terrorize in the beginning yeah. because we were small. We wanted people to fear us. Mm-hmm. Now the violence is an outgrowth of their ideology. Yeah. Right. Whereas before, it was still tied into the ideology, but that's not what drove us to mm-hmm. do it. Uh, what's driving them now is the ideology that is ingrained in them saying, if we don't act now, if we don't do something now, right. they're going to overtake us. That's and the right, last right. thing you want is for your children right. to be you know, ruled or governed by So we've got to take it back others. this way. Right. right. And it's actually even built into their mission statement. So they have like this thing called the 14 words. Yeah. And it's, I have to remember it, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. That's their mantra. Wow. So everything that they do now since the 80s and 90s has really been geared towards leaderless resistance, basically yep. lone wolf strategy. Yep. Like don't join a group. It's right. easier for the authorities to infiltrate you if you're part of a group. So get the ideology, go out into the world. Uh, you know, I don't want to give the impression that this is a... It is reaching epidemic levels in my eyes, yeah. but epidemic levels in, in extremism and terrorism is also thinking like if we had 100 ISIS members training in the desert, mm-hmm. that would be a terrorist threat. We shouldn't diminish the yeah. fact that there may be 10,000 10, or right. 100,000 white supremacists, most of which won't be violent, right. but, but there may still... be 1,000 that will. Right. Yeah. So right. this is the biggest terrorist threat I think we're facing in our country today. Why? Because it's already here. Yeah, it's on the ground. So you are heading over to the SDLC. You're going to be giving a message to the students who are part of the conference. What's the message? What's the message to them? I mean, clearly you've got a lot to say about your own personal experience, but overall, what's going to be the thing you want them to take away? Well, you know, I think first I I have to acknowledge my privilege of being here. I don't Mm. know that if my... You know, if I had darker skin with my background, I would have been given this chance. And I want to make sure I acknowledge that. Um, And because of that privilege, I want to make sure that I stand shoulder to shoulder with the people who don't have a voice and speak with them. Uh, And and hopefully what I'll be able to say to people is, you know, if we really want to defeat the violent part of white supremacy, the people who walk into a synagogue or into a, a, you know, a Mother Emanuel church in, in Charleston or, you know, run people down in the street in Charlottesville, We have to, and this is a tough pill to swallow, we have to understand that we have to see the broken child inside of them and not the monster. Absolutely. Because if we see the monster, there is no redemption. There's no saving them. And we sometimes have to adopt the same tactics against them to get rid of them. Right. We have to kill them or we have to jail them or whatever we want to do. Or or segregate them. Right. But I can tell you from experience not just for my own, but from over 250 people that I've worked with, who were these haters, who were stockpiling weapons, yeah. who did have you know swastikas tattooed on their face, or who were the Grand Dragons of the KKK at one point, are now speaking against it. They're living positive yeah. lives because what happened was 
I didn't challenge them. I didn't debate them in those ways. I right. didn't tell them they were wrong or stupid. I didn't shame them. What I did was I tried to listen very closely for their potholes. Yeah. And when I talk about potholes, I'm talking right. about the traumas in their lives. Yeah. And we all have them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Some of us yeah. you know, are resilient. Some of us right. have support. Some right. of us can jump over those potholes because of privilege. Uh, but some people do not have access to, to emergency road services, right. so to speak. <laughs> so I listen for those potholes, and then I, I fill them in. Yeah. And when I help people become more re- resilient through education or job training or mental health counseling or right. life coaching, it's amazing that the need to blame the other mm-hmm. for something that's wrong in their life magically disappears mm-hmm. because now they're just a little bit more accountable, a little bit more self-aware, but I don't stop there because what I introduce them to are the people that they think that they hate. Right. So I and try to destroy the demonization right. with humanization. Humanize and individualize. Right. And, and that is kind of the magic yeah. wand right yeah. there because it's impossible, especially in a one-on-one situation, right. to meet with somebody who's genuinely empathetic with you right. and wants kind. to understand why you're in pain yeah. and isn't condescending about it. Yeah. And they're listening to your heart and you're listening to theirs. And people walk right. away with that demonization destroyed. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, it takes a long time. I'm simplifying it. Of course, but that's what I do. Yeah. So they're, you know, obviously they're folks of color walking all throughout this place, right? Sure. And you're doing important work, vital work. Being a person of color, if somebody says, "Well, I want to ride with this too," sure. You know, I want to convert hearts and minds. And is this work possible for somebody who identifies as African American, Latino, Jewish, female, anyone that these groups tend to? ostracized or seem to marginalize, can somebody of my tone, my skin color, jump out of the car and be like, hey, white supremacist, <laughs> come on over here. Have, I want to holler at you real yeah, quick. Let's have a conversation. I'm not, I'm not that much lighter skin than, <laughs> than you, uh, to be honest. But, uh, you know, this is the, really the work of humanity. Yeah. What I do is not rocket science. I'm right, not a right. psychologist. I don't have a Ph.D., uh, I just happened to have gone through an immersive experience that gave me that education. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing, Art, is what changed me, what was the biggest transformative experience for me was meeting the people that I thought I hated, black people, Jewish people, gay people, you know, when I was younger, and them showing me compassion when I least deserved it, and they were the people I least deserved it from now. I'm not saying it's the responsibility of people of color to do that. Right. But I can tell you that in hundreds of experiences, it's the only thing I've ever seen break hate. Yeah. And I can't tell you, people are like, well, you can't ask that of of people of color. And I don't. I can't tell you how many emails and requests I get from African-Americans, from Jewish people, from gay people saying, I want to be that person that that neo-Nazi meets, that that white nationalist meets. Can I please show my empathy to them because I want to make that change right. people. Right. So right. anybody can do this. And frankly, these days, you don't know who a white supremacist is. You never know. Or right. who's in trouble right. or who's hurting from something right. because we tend not to who's, show those living things. out a pothole. So right. I think it's just a matter of we just have to be good human beings to everybody. So with that kind of humanitarian or just you know hum- humane work that you do, do you think of yourself as an educator or do you think of yourself as an activist? Or a oh. connector, or what, what would which Wow, one? that's a really deep question, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a very short one, but a very deep. You know, I've always considered myself an activist, though I haven't always been an activist. Okay. And let, let me explain. I've always been very idealistic. I've always been very inspired to make change. From the day I was born, I've always had kind of these lofty ideas, and I think that that was part of my downfall with this movement, is I almost saw it as an entrepreneurial opportunity without thinking of the consequences. 
So in that sense, I always want to change the world. Yeah. I always want to make it better, even though sometimes I'm misguided in what I think better is. So yes, I think I'm an activist, but I also think I'm an educator. But I do that not by necessarily instructing people uh, by what I say, but by what I do. What you do. Uh, you know, I, 23 years ago, 24 years ago, I left the white supremacist movement. I've spent those 20 plus years now helping other people disengage. And again, I don't do that by telling them what they need to know. I, right. I do that by showing them what they right. need to know. Right. Because facts in today's environment don't have the same yeah. penetration. Yeah. They're not as trusted. Uh, and emotion is always trusted. Right. So I try to really, I try to get them to come up with a decision to, to leave. Yeah. I don't ever ask them to. Yeah. So, and it's, I've been very successful doing that. Well, in a lot of ways, that's, that's kind of what's missing, a missing element of civil discourse. Right. But I also right. do hold them accountable. Absolutely. You must. Nobody gets a pass. <laughs> I didn't get a pass. I held right. myself accountable. Right. So, so um, in your book, uh, White American Youth, there's a couple different stories that you tell and photographs associated with your experience, one of which was your experience and or trip to Dachau. Tell right. us about that. So I had uh, very early on in, the, in my movement experience, around 16 years old, figured out that music was a really powerful tool to bring people together, recruit people, invoke emotion, things like that. So I started writing racist songs. Uh, I was one of the first bands in America to do that. And the first band from America to leave the U.S. to go to Europe. And we went to, uh, we played a concert in, in Weimar, Germany, former East Germany. Uh, and we played in front of 4,000 skinheads from all over Europe. And it was wow. the first time that, like, it really hit home how real it was because I saw the consequences of my words yeah. from the stage. Mm -hmm. uh, but during that trip, uh, I made a trip to Dachau, which is a, a concentration camp, because, you know, looking back now, the power of hindsight, looking back now, I think I went there to understand myself a little right. bit. But right. I think that what I put out there by going there and the actions that I did by going there were, it was a veneer to spread fear and mm -hmm. terror mm -hmm. while I was completely afraid and terrorized inside yeah. about who I was. Yeah. And it was always that balance of, I have to show the worst side of me, right? Mm -hmm. which I didn't think was the worst. I thought it was the strong side of me right. while feeling the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. It was all about projection. And in fact, I can be, I'm fairly certain when I say this that almost everybody that I met in the white power movement, it wasn't about hating other people. It was about hating themselves yeah. and, and, and being projecting so miserable about self-loathing and projecting that onto other people to minimize their own pain. I yeah. really, I really believe that. I mean, there were certainly sociopaths. There were, you know, yeah. there were people who were raised in racist families. Right. There were, I mean, there was all of that. But right. the majority of people that I met were people, I think, who were deeply broken. Yeah who then found a way to punish other people for their own brokenness. Yeah. It, it's interesting you said that about that picture because in, in, and I think as I won't speak for all of black America, but I know that I, I, I study race almost daily because it's, it's something that I have to be conscious of. My family has to be conscious of. Um, and looking at that picture of you in front of that concentration camp, you could, I could see exactly what you described. I saw a young man who it was almost like I have to do this. Right. Not so much that I believe in this. Right. And then to see and you know, to look deeper into the picture and then to see there's an individual in the back who's kind of turned around looking yeah. at you. Yeah. 
Like what? Almost like what? What? What, what are you why doing? Would you do why would you do that? You know, you just really made me have kind of a moment of of understanding about myself that I don't think I had before. I think the violent moments and the pictures like you saw, like the really provocative stuff that I did right. was just done for me to buy myself enough time to survive between those moments mm. because I felt like I needed that conf- that false confidence, that false respect mm-hmm. because I didn't have it for myself yeah. and I needed it to get through. And that's, you know, I, I think eventually... I think my soul, kind of, if we're going to talk about soul, right. I think my soul gave out after right. doing it. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I mean, and, and I kind of wanted to just die. At the, I mean, when I left, I spent five years in a depression. Even though, like, my heart changed, I yeah. was, you know, very open, very empathetic. I was not telling anybody about my past. I was running from it. And yeah. I went through a depression for five years where I didn't want to wake up in the morning. I wished I could just sleep forever. Right. And I think that that's, those were those moments that I was going through in between those moments of violence yeah. or, you know, provocative, you right. know pro- being provocative. But you also had a moment of redemption, right? You, I think that's, that's probably the most important part. Right. Right. That's, why we're, si- that's, that's why we're sitting here, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness we had a moment of redemption. That's real. Right Otherwise. Yeah. So, but um, there's a story about the security guard. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mr. Holmes. Yeah. Tell us that one. Well... You know, I, I had gone to six high schools. I'd gotten kicked out of all of them, one of them twice, and I didn't have any future. And after I'd left the movement, kind of at tor- the tail end of this depression that I just talked about, uh, one of the few friends that I had said, um, you know, you really need to change your life. I don't want to see you die. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, what do you suggest? And, and she encouraged me to go apply for a job at IBM. She worked there, and I thought she was nuts. Yeah. I thought, you know, what? a waste of time. I'm an ex-skinhead. I'm going to go to IBM. They're going to hire me. No, I didn't. What's six high schools? No college, <laughs> no computer. I mean, it was ridiculous. Right. But I went. Tattoos. Tattoos. Right. Everything. Everything. You know, everything. I was hiding everything, but yeah. Mm. And I went, and uh, they asked me to come back for another interview. It was an entry-level position, just setting up computers at corporations and, and schools and universities and things yeah. like that. And I got the job, and I was thrilled because it was really the first thing in my life that ever gave me hope aside from my children being born which i lost because of the movement Uh, this job was like the next thing until they told me exactly where i would be going for my first day of work yeah it was back at my old high school the same one i got kicked out of twice we were installing our computers life when i when i working to get kicked out that's right (laughs) when i tell you they had no idea about my past i'm being serious they had no idea it was karma, coincidence, yeah, destiny, right, right. fate, whatever you believe right. in. It happened that day, and I was terrified because I knew that the minute I walked into that school, yeah. I'd lose my job. Yeah. Everything would go public. Right, right. You know, the internet wasn't around then. Like, so was, it's you. I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> but I knew it was not going to be good, and I was scared because I, I how, felt bad. How old were you at this time? I, oh, at that time I was, uh, so it would have been 1999, I was like 26. Okay. okay. Yeah, 27. Yeah, yeah, I'd been out of the movement for like, you know, five years, I okay. think. Yeah. 28, I think I was. Anyway, so I, I went, and I was afraid. And of course, as destiny would have it, yeah. who walks right in front of me but Mr. Holmes, the black security guard I'd gotten in a fist fight with that got me kicked out the second time yeah. and let out in handcuffs. He didn't recognize me, but I, you know, I recognized him, and, and right. uh, I don't know how long I stood there trying to think of what to do, but I could not 
move. Yeah. I couldn't think you of what you to say. To I couldn't think of what to do. Right. But I decided eventually to, you know, to go after him. And I found him in the parking lot as he was getting into his car and, and tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around. And, and when he saw me, he jumped back. Yeah. He was afraid of me. Because he knew it then. He recognized. Well, right? yeah, yeah. He recognized me instantly. And, and all I could think to do and say was, I'm sorry. And uh, I'll never forget his response. He came back and he said, I appreciate that. <laughs> but you know what? That makes you feel good. It does nothing for me. Right, right. <laughs> and I said, you're right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then he challenged me. I mean, we talked for a while. He, you know, he embraced me. We cried. You know, we talked. And, and, uh, and he saved my life that day because he said, you know what? Your story is really not that different from the thousands of other kids yeah, that I've, right, you know, yeah, had right. to watch over. Yeah. You know, for my 20 years here or however long he was there. And he said, uh, you need to tell your story so those other kids don't go down a bad path like right. you did. Because you were a good kid. You came from a good family. You smart. You know, you were talented. Why? You know, and that's the question. Why would somebody like you go down that path? Right. It wasn't for ideology. It was because I was broken and I was searching for something. Yeah, the potholes. Right. So, you know, he, he saved my life because he told me to go out there and tell my story. And when I finally found the courage to do that. I've now been doing that for 20 years. It's fantastic. So, when yeah. you think about <laughs> being a human, yeah. right? And I like how you phrase your narrative. You know, I think several times during this, this conversation, you've talked about the human side of it, not the race side of it. Yeah. But as humans, we are, you know, I think about there are times when I, I mean, I'll, I'll be reading something and just out of a cold just thought, I'll go like, oh, man, I can't believe I did that when I was 13. Or I can't believe I said that to somebody when I was 26 and I was at that party. And then there's a moment where I almost have to remember that I have to forgive myself. And you said that. Yeah. How many times, you know, if you can measure it, is it worth measuring? Do you ever think about measuring it? How many times do you say to yourself, Christian, you have to forgive yourself? Well, you know, it was actually Mr. Holmes who was the first person to tell me to do that. He said, you know, you, you got to you got to forgive yourself. And right. I, I think I have forgiven myself, but I, I have not stopped holding myself accountable. Okay. Yeah. Which is what drives me today yeah. because there is nothing in me that would allow me to sit back and watch what is happening now happen. Right. Uh, I've not started right. doing this work in 2016 when this started happening. I started doing this work 20 years 20 ago. 20 years ago, yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been talking about this for 20 years. I've been talking about the threat. I've been talking about where it's going so, you know, while I, I think I have forgiven myself and I, and I still am continuing to do that while I do the work that I do, but, you know, I, I think I've not stopped holding myself accountable for that mm -hmm. and it's my responsibility to clean mm -hmm. it up. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't put that on anybody. It's certainly not the victim's responsibility to clean it up. Right. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, in this day and age, there are a lot of well-intentioned white people who want to do the right thing who frankly don't know what to do. Don't know what to do. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, they step in it. And they do the wrong thing. And then, you know, when they get called out for it, it's embarrassing. Sure. And they recoil. Yeah. And they make it worse. Yeah. And it's, I need to work with them to say, hold on. Get back in it. You're going you're gonna to screw up. That's acknowledge right. it. Don't get do it again. In. Dive right back in. Right? And, yeah. you know, I mean, I still do it from time to time. Sure. I mean, I'm not, you know, obviously nowhere near where I was. But, I mean, I, there are things where I'm learning about something. And I'll say something insensitive. And then I'll learn something new and I'll be like, I can't believe I said that two weeks ago. Like, yeah. wow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that, I, I do hold myself accountable. It drives me to do the right thing. And I don't know that I would have it any other way, to be yeah. honest. Fair so. enough. That's a, um, 
It's an interesting point to segue. So typically at the end of our podcast, we finish with what we call pop quiz. Hashtag pop quiz. Hashtag pop quiz. Here we go. Okay. So we're going to throw out a um, about four different questions to you. Okay. Um, and we don't want you to think about them really deeply, but just give us a quick hit, a quick mm-hmm. response. But it's a. I'm going to start with this one because it sounds like it's a perfect connection to what you just said. For you, what is your personal true north? Uh. You know, somebody asked me at one point to come up with a three-word mission statement for my life, and I wanted to go back to my old days and punch him in the face <laughs> because it was hard. And, you know, Don't ask me to do But I did things. come up right. with it after a, you know, a week of thinking about it, and it's really three words. Make good happen. And I really try and weigh every decision I, I make against those three words. Right. So I think as long as I am working towards progress and knowing that, you know, some days I'm not going to do it. Some days I may take a step backwards. But as long as my true north is always doing good, yeah. and that is in a general sense, not good for me. Right, just doing just good. Like doing good, good right. period. Yeah. Uh, then that, that is my true north. But also, you know, being genuine about yeah. what I do is, is something that I always have to do. School for me was? A nightmare. Like I said, six different high schools before that, you know, eight years at an elementary school where I was uh, bullied. But college, I can tell you, going back as an adult was an eye-opening experience because um, I went in with a new perspective of of information, of knowledge, and how much more powerful that makes us. Uh, But it also opened up my eyes because it was the first time in my life that I had been in a a multicultural, multi-global experience to really get perspectives from people that I normally would never have contact with. So even though I was completely out of the movement, I was already doing this work, just being at a university that had people from all over the world speaking different languages expanded my mind even more. That wasn't a quick answer. (laughs) We're going to forgive you. It's always, always, pop quiz. It can be challenging. Well, you know, you got to fill in a little extra with the teacher. I was never good at pop quizzes. (laughs) (laughs) So what about this? What do schools? What do you think schools need the most? That's that's my one right there. Oh, I want right. to hear this. What, what do, do schools school? need to do? Because no, no, that seems right. to be the root of what drove you to the place that you think is right. or, or you feel is the most challenging spot in your life. It's, right. You're you talk openly and honestly about being bullied, you know, not fitting in. Right. Um, you know what? What do schools need? You got a whole bunch of yeah. people who work in schools who are listening to you right now. What do we need to do? Well, I think uh, giving agency to the students and, and student leadership is important because I, I think the way our education is, system has been for, you know, since its beginning, it's, it's been about the adults formulating uh, curriculum for students. Yeah. Right. Now, right. of course, they're more mature. They have access to more information, more experience. Right. But I also think it's very important to amplify what young people are already passionate about so that they can get the education that they're interested in. Second, uh, you don't. You get two answers. For that. <laughs> uh, we'll take it. You, but I would you say the quiz. Chris. I would say cautious vulnerability. I'm used to that. Uh, cautious <laughs> vulnerability. As teachers, as parents, as adults, we need to learn how to be vulnerable with young people. Otherwise, they will never know how to be vulnerable with us and tell uh, us what's really happening in the right, world. Right. They'll never be able to share their feelings of confusion, inadequacy. Uh, you know, low self-esteem because they need to, they don't want to fail us. They don't want to fail. And we're not perfect. Right. We're doing, you know, we, we do everything we can to seem like superheroes to them. Right. And I think there has to be that cautious vulnerability, that opening up and being able to share intimate information. Right. Uh, and I think if teachers can do that, they'll learn how to teach better. And I think students will learn how to learn better. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's all I'm saying. Chris, 
Wow. Wow. Christian Picciolini, you have been a fantastic, uh, fantastic guest for us, man. Your story is compelling. Right. White Thank American you. Youth is the book. Um, we look forward to hearing your talk at the SDLC keynote or feature speaker presentation later. It's Absolutely. been a pleasure, my friend. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thanks Thanks a lot. All right. We've come to the end of the show, and unfortunately, that's our time. If we've done our job right, you've been informed as well as entertained. If you like the show, you know what to do. Please subscribe, rate, and by all means, leave a review. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. But also be sure to follow us on Twitter at Straight A's Pod. We look forward to seeing you there as well as right back here for the next show. Take care. Till next time.